Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. My guest today is a legend and uh, a great man, Doc Rivers, Glenn Doc Rivers, uh, who is now the coach of the 76ers. He was uh, an incredibly important basketball player, uh, great in college, great in the pros, and has been coaching and running teams almost ever since. And um, Doc, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. This is uh, this is the thrill for me as well. I love your work. Well, thank you. It's gr- it's great to hear. And you know, I I think a lot about um, leadership. I think about it when I'm as a writer and as a human being, and you know, running my show. And you stepped up. You've been a a, a leader for a very long time, but you had to step up in a real particular way this year. And when the league and the players and the country needed you. You really stepped into the breach. And I have a few questions about this because I think we can all learn from it. So one would be, how had your life up to that moment prepared you for it? And then also, were you aware as you were speaking the kind of impact it, it might have? Well, I, I'll answer the, the, the second first. Uh, I clearly was not aware. Um, you know, Brian, it was interesting. I knew I had something to say. I didn't know if what I was going to say was going to be important or, or you know, relevant even. Um, I was asked to, to make a comment after or before the game about what was going on with social justice, a police brutality, and all the other things. And I politely declined uh, because we had a game and I wanted to get through the game. Yeah, uh, because that's my job, you know, and I have to have my focus and do my job. Uh, and then right after the game, I had gotten through the interview and I honestly had forgotten that I had said, ask me after the game. Uh, <laughs> yeah. and, and someone asked me the same question. And the answer is what I gave. Um, you know, it hadn't been thought out or, or written. It, it came from the heart. Uh, it came from the way I felt and and probably that's how I'm going to answer the first question is because of life experiences, you know, um, that question or that answer was an easy answer for me because I've lived that life. Um, and so there was nothing that I'd said that I hadn't seen or hadn't witnessed firsthand. I wasn't going by reports of all these things happening. I was going by actually seeing them happen and being involved in them, um, you know, growing yes. up in Chicago. Listen, you, it was, especially when I grew up, it was probably the most segregated city uh, in America, the most segregated big city in America. And so, yeah, I saw a lot of stuff. And, and, and it was clear that that was like the least calculated, most um, intellectually and emotionally true statement, maybe that a coach, you know, because coaches are always so circumspect and careful and have to be. And it was clear that you were just made a decision in that moment to be very authentic. Right? Yeah, it was interesting because I actually felt like right when I finished, I walked off and I got on the bus and I actually like, wow, man, I let my guard down a little bit, you know, because of being a coach. Um, and then I thought it needed to be down. Uh, people needed to hear. Um, and I would say a minute on the bus, Pat Beverly gets on the bus and says, hey, coach, thank you. Mm-hmm. And I had no idea what he was talking about because there's no way he could have heard that uh, interview. He was in the locker room, and I guess someone had already replayed it for him. That was you know, literally a five-minute separation. So that made me feel good uh, that one of my players heard it. I didn't know anyone else would hear it, but it made me feel good that one of them heard it. Man, that must have been such an actually, as far as the catharsis of the moment, but then the cathartic sort of satisfaction or connection with your players, which obviously was not at all your intention, must have also been really emotional, especially having gone through the Donald Sterling thing. And I wondered if that was some kind of a horrible test run for all this for you in a way. Sure it was. You know, um, yeah, it's, it's totally two different things, as you know. Uh, but when you go through anything like that, the Donald Sterling was horrific uh, to go through because you, I was blindsided uh, by something that when I look back upon it, I was blindsided by something that I should not have been blindsided by. <laughs> you know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, 
it's amazing how we can shut off what a person is uh, at times or ignore it or just don't see it because we don't want to see it. Uh, and in Donald Sterling's case, if, if, if I had just done the research, I would have known the possibility of what was happening was there, you know, and so that blindsided me and, and uh, it taught me a lot about leadership in that one, in that case, because there are so many moving parts and that was active as well. It just seems like all these things have to happen in the playoffs for me. I wish it happened in <laughs> the preseason. Yeah. yeah. But this is, this is an incredibly deep thing that you just said. Uh, I think an, an applicable, especially now in the world, uh, because we all get so um, oriented to our team and to holding on to what we've identified as the thing that matters to us. And that whole thing in our country where we put blinders on to the stuff we don't want to see. And, and, and I can imagine that after you realize that about Sterling, it actually must have like uh, been hard to incorporate that as you went forward because you also have to have blinders on to do the thing that you do. Yeah, you do as a coach and, and, and to do your job, you know, you have to forge forward. You know, my, my dad has always had this thing and, you know, uh, growing up about having no victims in a river's house. You know, I don't know. I think I, Brian, I heard that one million times. There'll be no victims <laughs> in a river's house. Uh, and right. in some ways that kind of sets you up to be a coach because, you know, no matter what happens, one's a losses, it's the next game, it's the next practice, it's the next day. And you really stay focused and you stay in that. Uh, when the season starts, uh, for me, I'm engrossed by my job. I love my job. And, and so that's, that's your focus. And there are times where you have blinders on and you literally uh, turn yourself off from the news in the real world uh, because in pro sports, as I tell my players every day, we do not live in a real world. Um, we literally live in an in a NBA bubble at, in, in, a, in a strange way. Right. That makes complete sense as you're saying it, that, 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 uh, that kind of compartmentalization is essential for you to actually succeed because uh, if you give in to the distractions, there are millions of distractions. Everything is on offer for players in the NBA, right? And it, it seems like it must be part of your job to constantly walk them through the kind of focus that's required to, to come together and win as a team. Yeah, it's the only way you can come together. Um, and you use the word required. I use that word all the time um, because, you know, there's you have different teams. You know, I've, I've, I, you have a team that is a good team, but maybe not. Like the team I had with the Clippers two years ago, like before the year, you know, we traded all the good players away, quote unquote, good players away. Right. Uh, and yet we still make the playoffs. Uh, we give Golden State a, 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 you know, a scare, but you knew we weren't going to win, and I knew we weren't going to win. You, you, you're realistic with that. Uh, but then when you have a championship team or a team that has a chance to win a title, then there's required – I use that word, required work. There's required things. Once everybody on your team decides, okay, guys, we, we want to win that. And once I hear that and I get them to, to commit to that, then I, the next word is required. Okay, there's required things you have to do to be a champion. Uh, and, and there's no other way about it. You have to do these required things if you want to be a champ. And that's it. How does a, a leader like you, a coach, uh, like I watched this interview with you the other day where, where, you know, Embiid, who is a superstar, one of the greatest players in the league and arguably should be able to be one of the two or three best players in the league. When he said, I just, you know, I have to bring a championship. And I was really fascinated by your response to that, which was, you know, he said it, I didn't say it. And then you said, but once you say that, you know, you kind of are saying you're going to deliver on it. And I know that must have, you know, coaches don't say things accidentally. So you thought about what you were going to say. How do you weigh how much pressure in, in each individual player can handle? And as a, po I'm a poker player, you know, and so you're trying to always look at the table and figure out tendencies. How do you figure that shit out about the players? And how long does it take you to sort of gather that feel for, for, for what each person needs? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and it's gathered information. 
Uh, it, it really is. It's you have to gather that information through the year, through trial and error, through end of the game plays, through practices. Um, you know, you are hoping. I always call them your one percenters uh, are your guys, and, and that's you know the Joel Embiid's uh, of the world, Ben Simmons's of the world. Um, you know, those are the guys that you know at some point will have to carry more weight. It's just the way it is. Uh, they're the stars, but there are guys on your team that you know by the end of the year that are fine with the moment. Um, they're not necessarily huh. going to make the play, but if you swing the ball to them, they will take the shot. Right. Uh, and you want to try to figure out through the year who that is. You know, one of the things we do about this pressure thing, um, you know, I always, I have this thing about embracing it and attacking it and enjoying it. Uh, and, and then telling them, it's not enjoyable uh, in the sense that, you know, I, me and my friends, I'm a golfer. I don't know. If me you, too. I'm a nut. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. So whenever you hear like uh, on Saturday night, uh, a golfer that has never won in his interview and he's on the leaderboard, he's leading. And he makes this comment. Now I have a group of friends. We say he's done. Well, tomorrow I'm just going to try to enjoy it. Oh, yeah. Yes, yeah. And, and I always say there is nothing enjoyable about it until you finish. You know, but, well, but that, yeah, that's fascinating, Doc, because the 54 hole lead is what the 54 hole lead, which, as you know, is so precarious. Yeah. It is a really similar to being favored in a playoff series, right? A favorite in the playoff series. Um, uh, going to a game seven. Uh, yes. You know, it's, it's all those things. And, you know, when I hear a, a, a golfer say that, I'm thinking he's not going to sleep tonight. Mm. Uh, he's going to get up and it's going to be different. Uh, and the guys who usually break through are the guys who accept it's going to be different. I'm coming in here. I'm grinding this win out. Uh, I don't care how hard it is. I'm going to keep my focus. I'm not going to look about, I'm not going to focus on what will happen. I'm only going to stay focused on what's happening now. And that's the only thing that I can control. Um, I, I tell guys all the time, you can't control the celebration, but you can control the game. And if you stay focused on the game, you have a chance to win the game. Uh, the celebration will be what it is. Uh, but but how, do you, how do you do it? So, so I've been thinking about this a lot because uh, I, I knew I was going to talk to you. So I agree with every word that you're saying. And, and I'm a big John Wooden guy, too, and Harvey Penick person. Like, I read all that stuff, as I'm sure you've read it all yes. uh, and, and thought about it all. But when you as the coach become a lightning rod where you're in a town and the pressure from the town is there, how do you stay in the moment? I... Staying in the moment. I mean, I know when I have a movie that doesn't do well and a movie's coming out in a front or I feel like uh, the world is looking. I understand what it feels like. How do you separate or how have you trained yourself, I guess, to separate all that stuff so that when you walk in the locker room or you're in the game, it is only about the ball in front of you and the inner game of tennis and staying in the moment. Like, what have you done to train yourself to succeed in those moments without taking the weight of everything else on? You know, probably trial and error through life, through being a player, uh, through being a coach. Uh, I'm a process-oriented guy. Uh, I've always been able to do that. I, I focus. I don't ever – I just focus on what I don't have yet. Um, huh. You right. know, um, and, and I think that's so important to do. That's my focus. Um, you know, there's a, a great story about Tiger Woods. Uh, someone went to his house. Uh, and saw no trophies and was like, Where, where's the uh, master's trophy and, and all that? And and he made a comment, something like, well, I, I don't know. I think it's downstairs in the garage or in the basement. And, he, and the guy was like, well, what? And he, he guessed, he, he said something like, that's not what I'm chasing. Right. So in his mind, he hadn't accomplished yet. He was still chasing what he was going after. Um, which for most of us, one green jacket would be good, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, no, but that's true, except you won the championship, Doc, and you still, uh, Robbie, you won the NBA championship. You yeah, did it as a coach. Winning one is not enough for me. Um, 
It isn't. Uh, and it's funny. Uh, the first thing, when we won in Boston in 2008, the, the yes. biggest mistake I made, I'm sure you've heard, I'm the only coach, and you can go back and look at all the video of the locker room celebration. I know. I can't believe you didn't go in there. I don't understand it. I yeah. don't understand it. Except yeah. you had family stuff. So, I mean, that makes it make I sense. Did. You needed it them. was just a blunder. I thought, <laughs> let's be right. honest. Somehow I forgot about going into the locker room after game seven. That It's nuts. Um, but the first thing that I'd said to myself was, man, this winning is hard. <laughs> it's hard. I remember sitting at my desk all by myself in my office smoking Red Allbox cigarette or cigar that he had given me. Uh, when I first took the job, he said, you can only smoke this if you win it. And I smoked the cigar that night. That's the last cigar that I've had, uh, <laughs> too. And, and I sat there under his picture. I took a deep breath and I said, what do you think about this to myself? Like a self-talk. And the first thing I said was the word hard. Winning is hard, man. You you have to do so much to be the champion. Now, being a winner is a better statement is hard. Winning, a lot of people can do. But being the winner is really hard. You, you yes. have to do everything right. Um, you have to get everybody to do the right stuff, to buy into their roles, uh, to buy into the team. And if one guy doesn't do that, it could literally throw your team off. Uh, it's so important that it, in a team sport. Uh, yes. and, and, you know, it's funny. I, when I talk to businesses, I say, you're in a team sport, too. You're not in an individual sport uh, when you run a company or when you're making a movie. It'd be easy if it was just Brian. Of course. <laughs> no, of course. And Well, this is, uh, uh, you know, I think about. A whole bunch of things with what you're saying is what you're saying is brilliant and and so right. It hits me so hard. Um, when you know, if I have to get uh, in 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 some part of my career, an actor to play a scene where they're going to lose the scene and the audience isn't going to like them for a period of time, you know, having now often if you have a great relationship and you've been, it's all the flow is happening in the way it should. That stuff's easy. But sometimes that stuff can be hard. And I, I think about that thing John Wooden always said, which is I'll treat everybody fairly, but I won't treat them equally because equal, that's not how you win. You know, the Kareem is going to get better. Uh, Kareem is going to get uh, different allowances than the 12th man on the team because Kareem needs that and the team needs Kareem to function a certain way. I think people get mixed up the difference between fair and equal. You know? Yes. Say more about that. Say more. Yeah. Well, they do. I mean, I tell my players all the time. I don't know if you ever heard that story with Jerry Rice. Uh, he told the story, I think it was about Steve Young. Steve Young, uh, his rookie year came late for a, a meeting. And um, Jim Walsh, the, the, the great coach. Uh, yeah. Um, he, Jim Walsh, yeah. Yeah, he came in and says, listen, Jim Walsh, yeah. uh, you can't be late. And Steve Young looked over at Joe Montana and said, well, he was late yesterday. <laughs> exactly. But you can't be late. Oh, that's great. Right. Oh, Bill Walsh. Bill Walsh. Yeah. Bill Walsh. Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, I, I had to know. I said Joe Walsh like the guitar player. It's Bill Walsh. I, I just remembered. Um, Which is pretty good, too, though. <laughs> yeah, nothing wrong with Joe Walsh, though. He and Bill Walsh didn't really do the same things for fun, I don't think. <laughs> You're a couple years older than me. We're basically the same generation, you and I. But today, people coming into the league, they're brands before they come into the league. Even Steve Young, as famous and well-known as he was, and everyone understood he was the successor, um, he's of our generation, right? So uh, people now, young athletes, are famous before they're even in the NBA. They're they're. They're wealthy when they start, as opposed to, you know, you made good money in the beginning, but you weren't wealthy for life after your first contract. And how do you think about that in terms of relating to those players? And, and um, you know, guys of your generation had to win. I mean, you had to win if you wanted a 10-year career. You had to win if you wanted to become a wealthy person and not just rich for a couple of years. It's different now. 
how do you reach those people and convince them that there's a value in winning beyond the material value in winning? Yeah, no, it's a good question. It, uh, when you watch the, um, the documentary on Jordan. Yes. Um, and I've talked to several NBA players and um, old coaches. And I had a great talk with Steve Kerr uh, about it right after it. And we, we, I asked him, what was the one thing that stood out to you watching that? And, you know, we all, we, we have all kinds of stuff, but the biggest thing I think we both decided on was how important winning was. Um, what, what those watching that document, not just Jordan, but how important winning was to everyone because of yes. what you just said. That's you, the only way you did make a, get a good contract or a long-term deal is you had to win. Uh, you had to perform. Um, it was your livelihood in, in the many cases that some of these guys were playing for. And you make a great point now. Guys come in with a brand. Uh, they come in with money. But winning hasn't changed. And that's my job now is to get them to understand uh, you do have all these riches now, but you're still not a winner. And, you know, you can mm. be a celebrity for a good time, but you are a winner forever. And and there's a big difference. And I, I use where I just came from. Hollywood might be the best example of that. Um, five years ago, who was the hottest person in Hollywood? You don't remember anymore. You can't remember anymore. But if five years ago, the Lakers had won the title, you would know that. And you would know who was on that team. Yes. Winning lasts forever. Celebrity and fame is fleeting. And how do you actually, what do you do to get those things into players' bodies, right? It's Because, you know, they're, they're hearing these, they're hearing words all the time from a million different places, social media. As a, as a coach... What are you trying to do to get almost like a kinesthetic, that is a, like sort of kinesthetic reality for them? Uh, do you think that's just hardwired in people? Is it the kind of thing that you can take a kid who's maybe, you know, w winning? Can you make somebody have that kind of desire for the teammates, like in the same way it happens at war? It's, it's, what, what does it? It's learned. It's taught. Because winning is not something inside of you because you haven't done it. You know, so when I hear people say that, though, they say, well, he was a winner. Well, he couldn't be a winner before he won. Right. You know, so there, there is a uh, this path uh, that you have to go on. And let's be clear, there are certain people who it's easier to get them on that path. You know, but there's nothing best for me when I look back at that 2008 season and, and us winning the title. You know, watching Kevin Garnett and Ray Allen and Paul Pierce celebrate uh, was yes. amazing. But also watching Tony Allen celebrate and Rajon Rondo celebrate. Those are young guys that didn't know winning from not winning. And then watch them for the rest of their careers carry on that. Every time you watch Rondo, playoff Rondo, that's from 2008. He, he knows what winning looks like. He knows what it feels like, and he knows that it's worth it. Tony Allen became one of the best defensive players in our generation. But that was all from winning and learning all the, the important things of winning um, and giving yourself to the team. That's the thing that I, I probably focus the most on is everybody, guys, you got to give yourself to this team. You got to give in. And, you know, I look at a bank, you know, if you just take from the bank, eventually you're going to be broke. You got to give. Right. Some, oh, that's great. You know, yes. you got to you got to make a deposit. And if you want to be great, you got to make a deposit to your team. Uh, and then you can make a withdrawal. And the withdrawal is the, tie, is the title. Uh, and, and how do you balance who needs praise? Again, I'm trying to ask you things that I know people need to know in their own lives, like when they're even raising kids or doing whatever. How do you figure out, OK, this one needs praise. This one needs criticism. This one needs somebody to listen to them. You know, how do you, how much time do your assistant coaches help you with that? Do you yeah. talk to their friends? How do you know who needs what from you? 
you don't know. You just feel, and, and you're wrong. I've been wrong before. I, I would hate sure. to come on and say, man, I get this right every time. Uh, we all get it. We all get this stuff wrong sometimes, uh, but yeah. it's your job, but, but it's not all of our, it's your job to do. You know what I mean? It's, um, it's, it's such job. a big part of your job, which, um, just feel intuition. But the more you know, the person, the more that you invest in the person, the more that you communicate with the person and communicate with his exterior people, the more information you have. Uh, if you're in the position where you have to make a decision on how to motivate people, how to love people sometimes, how to get on someone sometimes, you better have the proper information. Uh, and, and that's what I would say. I ask people all the time. There's been many times. I'm not going to use the player today. I, I called one of my coaches in the day. I said, what's going on with this guy? Um, he seems like uh, this and this. I don't think he's very interested. Uh, I don't think he's very motivated. And the, the coach who works him out says, man, he came in at 9 o'clock this morning. He's the first guy in. Ah. Uh, he's really down that he's playing poorly and he's pressing. Uh, and so, you know, this is a new team for us. And so watching him press, he kind of shuts off. Fascinating, right? Fascinating and so great that, okay, this is a big lesson, right? You ask that question instead of just mentally going, well, he doesn't give a shit. You actually ask the question, which let you reframe the way you looked at him. And suddenly you have empathy for this kid instead of being angry at this kid. Yeah. That's amazing, right? That's a great shift for you. I'm on the floor with that information and we sat down and talked and you say, man, I, I put so much work in and, you know, and now nothing's working. And I, I worked harder than everybody. That was his frustration. Uh, I was a young player, and then I told him, listen, just because you work harder than everybody doesn't mean it's going to happen tomorrow. But if you right. work and you got to trust the work, and eventually it'll come through. But that doesn't mean immediate. you got to be patient with your work and stay in there. Yeah, it's funny how people are built differently. I, I was thinking about, um, and I'm sure you've thought about this too, and the whole league is going to be thinking about it, which is LaMelo getting picked third. Uh, you can see, now maybe I'm projecting as a fan, but I watch this kid and I see a kid who's like, oh, you picked me third? Watch what I'm about to do to torch every one of you. And you wonder if he was picked first, maybe he's not doing what he's doing. Uh, you know what I mean? Yeah, you never know what guys, you know, it's funny how many times... Uh, every year I call a draft pick and it, there's times they're ecstatic. They could be a second round pick or there's times they're pissed. They could be the eighth pick in the draft. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you just never know. You know, Mike Fratello, I don't remember this. I just remember I was livid because, you know, when I was a junior in college, I was an all-American yes. and I really thought I was the best guard in college. And you know, that's nothing for me to say. That's what I do. Oh, no. wait, you were mad to go in the second round? That's amazing. Yeah, I, I was furious. And so Fratello <laughs> calls me and, I, you know, it was 16 guards went in front of me. I'm like, what? And so Fratello calls me and he's congratulating me. I'm not answering. I'm quiet. And he finally says, hey, man, I'm the one that likes you. Oh, that's great. I'm the one that drafted you. And, you know, so it was a good lesson for me. And, and what I tell all my guys, the draft is one day's of people's opinion. That's it. It's one day that people thought you were 31st in the draft. The rest of the days are up to you. So how much do you work on... Um on your own emotional mastery, because that's a lot of what we're talking about. I was watching you answer a question the other day, and I thought it was amazing. Um, they tried to give you a gotcha question about Paul George and something he said. And uh, I, because I'm a poker player, I saw in your eyes how you felt. But your answer, the first thing you said was, it was a great honor to coach him. He's a great player. Like, and what I saw was, okay, this is a person who's learned that the long game matters more than feeling good in the moment, right? In the moment, it would feel really good 
to, as a competitive person, a person who's annoyed he's taken 16th after 16 other players. But you've trained yourself somehow to answer that question in a way that it can't hurt you. And to set yourself up for the possibility that if you're ever coaching an Olympic team and that guy's on the team, you guys are cool. How long did it take you to get to that level of sort of being evolved as a person? Well, that's a uh, years probably. I don't know. I, I think I've I've always kind of gotten that a little bit too. Um, you know, I, I think from a coach, you've you learned. You know, when you're a coach, I, and I tell young coaches this, you got to open your heart up and understand. There's a very likely chance that it's going to get broken, and you have to open up your heart to every player that you have, every single one. Uh, give them everything you got. Give them your best. Uh, never coach them to who they are. Coach them to who they should be someday. And understand that for some of them, it's going to go great. And some of them, it's not. Some of them aren't going to turn out the way you thought or just aren't as good. Some of them just doesn't work with you. And, and some will turn on you. You know, they're going to kill you to the media. They may make comments about you. And you got to be okay with that. Uh, you did it for the right reason. Uh, and, and that's got to be your focus. Uh, and so more than not, years later, you have a conversation with that those same people. And they usually come back to you. Some never do. Yes. That's okay. Yes. You know? But most come back and say, man, if I only could have seen what you've seen in me or uh, oh, yeah. I was talking, I get that all the time. And, you know, it's a good feeling when that happens. And when they don't come back, it's okay, too, because as long as you did it, if you put yourself, I'm doing this for the right purpose, um, then you can live with it. Yeah, that's really deep and great. And I relate to it so hard, even on the toughest shoots I've been through where, you know, every day was a battle to get the movie shot in the way that we wanted to get it shot. And, the you know, the, the money fell apart and the actors didn't want to say their lines. And, the you know, when you see those, if you're going through it and everyone knows your only goal was to make the best thing, right? You weren't there for your ego. You weren't, you were there to try to make it great. When you see them three years later, you've been through the wars together. You were in the trenches together and you're bonded forever even if it was really difficult in the moment and you were arguing with each other in the moment. And that's the beautiful thing about all rowing together as hard as it is, right? Is that you have this family thing for the rest of your life. Yeah. Uh, I think Bill Parcells said, like when you finish a product or when you win a title, you have a blood transfusion with everybody that was involved for the rest of your life. Yes. Uh, and there, there will always be part of your life in some way. Uh, you cannot see someone for 10 years and you see them and you give them a hug. Uh, you go right into conversation and reminiscing. Uh, it's always you reminisce the joy and you laugh about the tough times. And at that moment when you're going through it, you didn't look at that a tough time. You look at this as a the worst thing that ever happened to me in my <laughs> life. At that moment. Yes. yes. And then you realize years later, it may have been the best thing that ever happened to you at that moment. You know, you're such an elevated thinker and, and you've obviously given all this stuff so much thought. How do you measure, like, are you somebody who checks in with yourself? Do you journal? Do you meditate? Like, what do you do to kind of like codify this stuff for yourself? Or do you just go through life and it just happens? I mean, how do you how do you sort of manage your own state in that way? It's probably a little bit of the, the last. I do just go through life. Um, I accept failures. Um, I, I try to, I try, you know, I don't think any of us can actually do what we all say is look at all your failures and then learn and, and study them. No. Uh, I mean, we tend to go back to do what we do. We just try to do it better, but I do try. Um, and then I'm a big meditator. I'm a big believer in meditation and, and, and keeping your focus and breathing. Um, I'm so, um, I'm an agitated, emotional coach at times. And um, I have found the more you can meditate and have focus, you have to be able to have that energy and still be able to focus at the same time. 
Um, what kind of med- what kind of meditation do you do? Transcendental. Uh, Me too. Me too. I do it twice a day. Yep. Never yeah. miss a day. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, as I know, whenever you have that, you know, 20 minute Holy Grail. When you, you oh know, my God. Yeah. It's Doc. Like, oh, wow. Doc, it's like everything to me. I, I didn't know. I somehow that didn't come up in the research on you that you do it. I don't know how much you talk about it, but yeah. so do you carve that time in the afternoon for the second one or, or not? Yeah, I do both. Some days you just do one. I do one uh, almost every day. I would say Me too. six out of seven days. Uh, but when you do two, it's great. And on game days, I do two. Uh, uh, I'm gonna. And you would literally. So th- this is really important because I talk about this in the podcast all the time. I do two as many days as I can. And sometimes, do you carve? Do you tell your assistants and your sec- you know, your executive assistants and your assistants like, "Hey, I need this twenty minutes. Nobody disturb me right now." And you go into your office and just shut the door and you truly check out for that second twenty minutes on game day. Definitely. And I, I have a box that my you know I'm lucky. I, my assistant Anne Marie has been with me for twenty years. 20 years, every year that Amazing. I coach, she's been by my side. Uh, Chuck Daly, uh, she was Chuck Daly's assistant. And Chuck Daly's right. the guy that got me hired. And he actually told me, hey, for the rest of your life, keep this lady with you, fire everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's his advice. But we have this saying, um, I need my box time. And, and, and basically what I'm saying is I create a square on game days. And the square is, has to stay empty. Um, and when I say I need my box time, I'm telling her that someone's in my box, someone's in my square and I need it clear. And so you get yourself, you get that clear time for a specific time during the day so that you can get centered and be ready to do the thing that you have to do. Yes. And do you encourage your players to meditate or do you offer that to them? Uh, Hey, I'll introduce you to Bob Roth or whoever and get you to meditate if you... Is that something you offer to the guys in the team? It's nothing that I've offered. Uh, I've done it individually to guys. Uh, but when I look back on, like, if I always go back, like we just talked about mistakes, um, it's something that, you know, I do now. Um, like I'm going to do, I'm actually uh, doing a sound bath uh, on Monday uh, to try someone out. And if it works, I'm going to introduce it to the team. Uh, That's great. Yeah, I just think there's this thing that is still untapped, Brian, in this, the, the, the mind and the focus and the meditation and being, that's still an untapped research. Sort I agree. Of, uh, I agree. Jobs. And we got to get to it. Uh, I think we should introduce it to schools more. Um, well, this is what, you know, the David Lynch Foundation, that's what they're trying to do is get it into schools. And I think they're great um, in the way that they're trying to do that. Yeah. And, and you know, that's where I uh I went to one of the David Lynch Foundation's locations in LA. Uh, that's where I got trained for Transcendental. But it's so it's so important that we just keep doing it. It helps me. Yeah, it's amazing how much energy and focus you have when you do it twice. It really is. And you tell yourself the second one. Like I, I, I could. I don't want to take the whole podcast with it, but I agree with you. Like when I make sure to get in a, a couple of weeks where I'm really doing the second one. First of all, it's not just better for you. It's better for everyone around you. And that's a good justification for it is like it, it just makes me anyway, more centered, ready to sort of take on whatever I need to and stay calm. And it helps you think more fluidly. Does when, um, do you think that I was thinking about this? So I, I played tennis earlier today and I had a pressure second serve. I play, I play much more tennis now than golf. I play tennis every day and, uh, pretty competitive, you know, pretty competitive. But like I had a really pressured second serve I put into the net. And, you know, I'm a 54-year-old man. The match doesn't mean anything. It does. And still. What are you talking And still I get. <laughs> yeah. I still get tight, right? I still like uh, a second serve in the deuce court. And I know I got to spin it to the guy's backhand. And suddenly it's in the net because I'm thinking. And I think about foul shots. I can't understand why foul shooting is so hard. And so what do you do? Because I was like a really good foul shooter. So what do you do to help guys uh, reduce the pressure in those pressures moments? Are there tricks to that? Or is it just repetition? It's, it's all those. It is tricks to it. Um, you know, remember DeAndre Jordan uh, was one yeah. of the worst foul shooters I've ever coached. And, you know, he, he seeked help and, uh, one of the guys who you know worked on focus told him he needed to break his train of thought right before he shot a free throw. You know, 
and so last year he had a two years ago with the Knicks, he had a career year for the free throw line and the players didn't understand what he was doing. But right when the ref gave him the ball, he would turn to one of his players. What are we doing on defense? Or he nice. just was crazy. And the players would look at him like, what the hell is he talking about? And before they even answered, he would take the shot. All he was doing was breaking his thought. Um, oh, it's a pattern. It's a pattern interrupt. That's really smart. Oh, that's really smart. Right. It, it, it interrupts that, that flow of thought, that, 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 that negative flow of thought. That's brilliant. Well, it's like, uh, you know, when you start putting bad in one round, all of a sudden, you know, I haven't made a putt all day. Man, I can't make a putt. Eventually, you can't make a butt, you know? Oh, I know. It's- and are you able to coach yourself? Are you good or bad at coaching yourself? So, like, in that situation, can you turn yourself around? Or are you just then the player and you need a coach? Both. I've had both. I mean, I've, I've played in tournaments. Uh, I mean, I, I got all the way down to a 6-1 uh, index this summer. That's and great. Uh, a, good, a, a very good friend of mine um, – uh, I'm not going to use names, but invited me. He's a member at Augusta. And I yes. go to Augusta. It's my second time going. But I'm, I'm working on my game, man, like getting ready for it. Uh, first hole, hit a great drive. <laughs> uh, you know, hit my second <laughs> shot left. And for the rest of the round, uh, it was just a brutal, awful round. And I'm trying to self-talk. I'm missing putts. Three, I mean, it was, it was a disaster. Well, that place is very – so I, I got to – Sports Illustrated asked me if I wanted to cover it two years ago. Yeah. And I jumped at the chance. You know, I'm not a sports writer, obviously, but I was like, yeah, I want to fucking cover the uh, uh, Masters. And I watched Ricky, and and his first shot – he started on 10 because it was rain. The first shot, he shanked it. Yeah. And then he ends up parring the hole, like, because his level of focus – was so great and he just didn't let it whereas it would destroy if I did that at my first round at the Masters I'd be dead forever you know but the, the repetition how many times they do it over and over again All right a few more here's here's a question I have I was thinking a lot about the history of basketball and I was thinking about um, what Earl Monroe did when he came to the Knicks, that he sacrificed being a 28-point-per-game scorer to score 18 and play next to Clyde to get a championship. And I was wondering, is there any way that someone will ever do something like that again? Like where someone will ever sacrifice the individual on that level in order to win a championship? Or has the world just changed forever and that can't? No, Ray Allen did it. You know, when you think about it with the Celtics, um, if you look at his shot attempts the year before to the year right. when he came with us, Ray had to give up a lot of stuff. Now, there were times he didn't like me <laughs> <laughs> because of it, uh, but it was what was required for us to win, and he did it, you know, and he went through it. So, yeah, I still think there are, but I think there's this thing that I believe now more than ever uh, for that to happen, that person has to be ready to win. There, there's, there's times in your life where you're just not ready yet to win. Uh, you know, you're so focused on chasing your individual stuff in a team sport. Uh, where we didn't have that as much when, when we played because we didn't have all the stuff that you can get, you know. And now, as you said, these guys come in as stars. They want to be the star. They, they, they're working on their brand. Um, and so I think a lot of athletes cross this threshold where, okay, I got a, everything that I want except for I want to be a winner. Uh, and so, yeah, I still think we'll get that, but they have to be in the right place. And that makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, what when you talk about the pressure to win and stuff, um, how do you manage, you know, I was thinking about that, that movie Moneyball when Art Howe says to Billy Bean, you know, it's hard to coach these guys if they know I'm on the hot seat. And what does it feel like when you're the coach and the town, you know, your first couple of years in Boston, or I think about, you know, Conan O'Brien, his first couple of years on TV, but that feeling when a town is skeptical and you feel the writers writing about you and you feel the town out for blood 
I understand you say you compartmentalize, but what does that actually, how do you, how much do you get it? Everybody wants to be like, you know, I remember uh, we we lost 18 games in a row uh, with the Boston Celtics. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. And and people forget that. I remember turning around and uh, these two people, two fans were sitting right behind uh, their season ticket holder and they had paper bags on their head. Uh, and one says fire doc and the other one said fire Danny. Um, and right, Danny Ainge, yeah. you know, and I turn around and I look at him and I, and I read it and I kind of <laughs> grin and I actually said, Hey, how, how are you guys doing? Like, I mean, <laughs> what, what, what to say, you know, um, and it's hard, it's hard walking the streets, you know, like in your mind, everybody's looking at you and there he is. Everybody's talking about you. Uh, and the only training I've had with that is you go back to work. You know, you just keep working. You keep thinking, man, you know, you you, you do have to self-talk. I'm good at this. Um, you also have to understand the situation, too. Like, it helped uh, knowing that we were not that good, you know. Uh, and that's the point. Yes. Oh, that's great. You mean it helped knowing, well, our talent isn't that great helped you because it was like, I can't, if I look at this objectively, we're not supposed to be winning yet. Yeah. But for a coach, you still each game. And I, and I, people find this hard to believe. We were, we were awful that year. Paul was out. Uh, I'm playing three high school kids, uh, literally in the starting lineup, Gerald Green, Sebastian Telfair, Al Jefferson, Kendrick, right. all came out of high school. Um, and every night going to the game, I have worked myself into how we were going to win tonight. Like, we're going to win tonight. We're going to, um, like, you, you could be playing the Spurs or whoever a, was a great team. Yes. But as a coach, you had really convinced yourself that, okay, we're, we're going to figure out how to win tonight. Do you uh, feel like it's a real shame that, um, like, that – I saw I saw Telfair play in high school at Rucker, and you know he was so good in high school. His passing was just so incredible, and you wonder like if he had somehow been on a team where he was able to come along more slowly and get something. I always wondered why he wasn't able to become a meaningful player in the league. I never understood it. Yeah, but a lot of times they're just not good enough, and I think that's usually the case more than anything. Um, Sebastian was a very talented player. He was small, he was undersized, he had short right. arms, and he wasn't a great shooter. So yes. he was so skilled and mentally above everybody when he was young. But when he got older, the size, he didn't grow, he didn't improve his shot, and all that stuff caught up to him, you know? And that's usually what happens, you know? There, you can be a savant at 12 and then all of a sudden average at 18. Because you got to keep, and you think that may be a function of just actually like maxing out, or he, you know, that goes back to this thing of these kids being so well known when they're young. Yeah, it's, it's like probably, not doing the work, not doing the work for two summers to get become a better shooter. Or doing the work, but not the right work, because they've done what they've done to be successful. So who are you to tell them they have to do something different? You know. So I, I think it's all those things. And and what's your mindset? Uh, Because I've lived through this where a career like mine in Hollywood is, you know, sometimes I'm the boss of everything. I'm a showrunner. I'm the director and producer. And sometimes I'm the screenwriter. And there's a, you know, uh, a really famous director directing. And it goes from me running a whole thing with hundreds and with my partner, hundreds of people to me being another piece of the machinery. And, And so for you, the adjustment of going from president and coach to being coach uh, and you have uh, Daryl's a friend of mine. I love Daryl Morey, so I'm so thrilled you guys are working together. He's the best. Um, but the adjustment uh, mentally of going from being the one, you know, the buck stops here to being part of the machine and the boss of a bunch of people and running stuff, but also not making every decision. What does yourself talk about that? And how does that become an opportunity? How do you talk yourself into, well, that's an opportunity not having to worry about that stuff as opposed to, I feel bad I'm not worrying about all that stuff. Well, I think for me, I realized early on I wouldn't cut out at that moment to be both. Um, I, I knew that I just wasn't – it was too much. Right. And I know as a coach you want control. You don't want 
uh, someone above you making decisions that's going to hurt you as a coach. You know, and so the one thing I would say what I learned from Danny Ainge is Danny Ainge and I were so locked together. Yes. Um, that it worked because of that, you know. And so for me, I think I, I knew early on, once I, I had all the power, I realized pretty quickly and said, wow, this, this is too much. Uh, <laughs> yes, I understand that. Yeah. I, I don't have time. And now I'm doing half jobs at both. And so I think it helped me where I actually came to the grips. I'm not ready to be a GM. And so for me to be a good coach, someone else has to be a GM and I have to give up that power and just hope that we can work together like Danny and I. Because when you have a relationship like Greg Popovich and R.C. Buford, yes, uh, Danny Ainge and myself, uh, Steve Kerr, and I can't think of their GM's name right now, um, fine, yeah. you're going to win. Um, and, and so that's what you, you try to get. But it helped me. I think it'd be much tougher for you going from running the movie to taking – because you're good at both. I wasn't good at being a GM. That's funny, right. Well, no, that's a great bit of self-knowledge. There are things that, there are definitely jobs I don't want to do and there are jobs, like I, I wouldn't want to run a movie studio. I know that I would hate that job and I probably wouldn't be that good at it. So I completely relate to that. I, I want to be able to make the things and not do that other piece of it. Um, I have three more three more questions that I'll let you go. One is, you, by all accounts, raised just, an, you know, the one, the, the one of your kids who's, who's Austin, who's famous, is obviously like people always talk about what a good teammate he is and a great kid he is and everything. I mean, young man now, not a kid anymore, he's a veteran. But uh, how hard was it to be a coach on the road and raise a kid? And also, you know, I know you thought a lot about like you, you, you didn't have the kind of privilege that your own uh, kid had. How did you balance all that stuff? And and you know, I remember when my son was ten, I had to stop coaching him because I realized. I don't want to put all my basketball dreams on my kid. So how did you manage all of that stuff um, and raise a kid who's able to achieve at such a high level? I didn't until he was a pro. You know, I did a conscious thing very early. I, I made a conscious choice. I'm Austin's going to, if he likes basketball or if my other son likes basketball, then great. Um, I'll get them to every event and I'm going to sit in the crowd and I'm going to be a parent. Uh, parents need to be parents. Um, parents need to be the kid's cheerleader. Uh, yes. to, they need to try to supply them with what, whatever they need, uh, a court and all that, and then back off. Um, you know, I, the funniest one was, you know, when, when Austin goes to Duke, Coach K asked me, you know, because Coach K and I had a relationship yes. home before Austin. And so I'm sitting in Coach A's office. We're just talking. And he asked me something about Austin. He said, what do you think if we ran this for Austin? I said, I don't, I don't know. And he's like, well, huh. you don't know. I said, I'm, I'm the parent. Oh, that's great. That's great. You did? That's an amazing moment. And, and he started laughing. He said, I know you're the parent, but you're not the parent. And I said, no, I'm the parent. Right. You just backed off. That's yeah. really because you didn't want to be responsible or enter into that head and analytically about – um, about your son, but how, even more complicated is coaching your, are you, you're coaching your son-in-law now, right? Yeah. Uh, that's that not, feels like a lot of pressure to me, man. As a father, coaching the in-law feels like a lot of pressure. Well, it's not been complicated yet because we haven't started yet. <laughs> yeah, but I don't know. That feels like, because you don't want your daughter call. I mean, your daughter having to call you seems bad. Oh, you know, it's funny. I just told someone that I said, you know, coaching Austin was tough because you know, I think if you do coach uh, in the pros yourself, yeah. you have two things you want to hope. One is either he's the best player on the team or two, yeah. the worst player on the team. Uh, <laughs> Austin was in the middle. Yes, yes. That made it very, very difficult. It would have been so much easier if he had just been the worst player. By sure, th then you never have to play him. Or the best, then you got to give him the ball every time. Yeah. Right. And in the best, you give it to him. But in the middle, because the, the guys he's right below or right above always are going to feel something. And so I thought that made it very difficult. 
but, but also with your son, you're able to have a di- for real, no joke. You're able to have a different conversation with your son, but with your son-in-law, it's almost like you have to have a conversation of some sort. Like you right. gotta, right? You gotta have some kind of conversation. Yeah, you know, we get along great, which helps. And he's such yes. an unassuming. The one thing I'd say that helps with Seth, Seth didn't get it easy. Right. You know, that's for sure. No, that's for sure. Yes. I mean, that dude, think about it. He had to go to, he Liberty. worked, he couldn't even go he had to, to work so a big school. He had to go to Liberty college and then, yes. then get to do, he, he goes undrafted. He goes yes. to uh, the, the NBDL at the time, the G league. Now um, he gets cut three and four times. Um, and now he's got a five-year deal. You know? It's unbelievable. So, so yes, his work ethic is beyond question. And so, I guess as a coach, that's what you're. You have that. You know, you got a guy who's scrappy and working his ass off to deliver exactly. for you. Yeah, and so that that helps for sure. All right. Two more quick things. One one is quick. The others maybe. One is, um, did coming out of the whole experience of the bubble, the whole experience of, um, the social justice questions now being this social justice committee, it. Does, and the way that people in America, you know, the fans of the league stuck with the league in so many ways, does it give you any cause for optimism? The way that your speech was received, the fact that the president of the United States was going around the country saying you're the new president yes, was using you. your words. Uh, oh, yeah. I, you don't know on social media. I'm like the big I I am uh, basically doing everything I can to get Trump to call me. I just want to fight with the guy. I hate him so much. Um, but uh, I really, I can't. It just drives me crazy. But I mean, we have a fascist dictator trying to pull off a coup. But um, yes. but Biden going around using your words. I basically, what did that feel like to you? And did that give you cause for optimism? Or does that give you cause for optimism? Uh, it felt cool. I mean, I, I would love to say I got calls and people... Uh, you know, from all kinds of people that are cool people, you know, uh, you know, my, my, my favorite, uh, well, there's a couple of favorites. Um, tell me, uh, but you know, uh, and I'm drawing a blank again, uh, Beckham, the, the, the soccer. David, David Beckham. Yeah. Out of nowhere. Uh, I get a DM from him That's and, awesome. and you know, I'm a big, I just, I, I love people like that because they've had so much success. Yes. Um, So that was a cool moment and all that for me. The optimism didn't really come from my speech for me or Joe Biden using my speech. My optimism came from sitting in the back of the players room that they invited me to come in and speak to them. Yes. And listening to them figure out, like, I wish you could have been there that first day. It was raw emotion and anger. And they were going to shut the lead down. Uh, they were going to do everything. Like, um, they had 30 things that they were going to, to, to do. And then the next day, realizing we can't do 30 things. Just 24 hours of sleeping on it and getting their emotions down and realizing, well, you can't like strike your partners because the NBA owners are actually your partners. They're not your opponents. Uh, you need your partners to do something together to make something great. And in a 24 hour period, watching that young group, that's what the optimism for me is young kids. I mean, Jalen Brown was a star in that room that day, you know, right. Stand up and give their opinions. Amazing. Uh, and then I'm sitting there. This is why it's going to last because this is not the old folks talking. These are young people talking. And as you know, once you get involved with politics yes. and involved with social, it, you don't never get uninvolved anymore. No, you're in. You're in. You're and in. so the fact that they're in and that they invited you in and that they took your counsel and they trusted that you would listen and they trusted you. I mean, in a way, that's very moving, right? That after all this time and everything you give into the league, for them to recognize you in that way must have felt beautiful on some level to you. Yeah, that, that felt great. Uh, and just being a part of it felt great. Like it was it was a cool moment for me just to see these guys and they uh, – it was raw emotion and they meant it uh, for me. It, it doesn't get much better than seeing that. And now uh, we're all on this console and these guys are, they're into it. 
um, yeah. and they're, they're single or it's focused now. They realize they can't be the legislator. They can't, but if they can get things done at a time and keep your focus on it, you can make a dent, man. It's been really cool to watch. All right, last question, uh, and I'm going to get you out of here on time, is in your opinion, this is just, uh, oh, this is just Glenn Doc Rivers' opinion. And are you really not going to be called Doc now in Philly because of Doc? No. Or you are. I, I, I tried. That didn't work. So No, you're Doc. You are who you are. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but here's it. In your opinion, in Doc Rivers' opinion, who won the slam dunk contest, Neek or Jordan? Oh, Dominique. That, that's not even close to me. <laughs> Man, Jordan's, Jordan's going to kill you. Jordan's yeah. going to kill you the next time he sees you. Yeah. But that, that's it. Neek won it. You were there. You saw. You watched. Neek won it. It's the one all-star game that I made. It's the one time I've actually been there. And, yeah. But listen, I grew up in Chicago. And we know the Democratic machine and how it works. <laughs> oh, this is everything I hope for to get that answer out of you. That is just perfect. Uh, Doc Rivers, thank you so much for being here. Good luck this season. You have a, the makings of a great team, a scrappy great team. And I can't wait to see what the... 76ers do. Doc is on Twitter. You can follow him on Twitter. You can find me at Brian Koppelman uh, on Twitter, and we will see you next time.